All right. Take your Bibles, please, if you will. And I would invite you to stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. This is a longer reading, so if, you, if standing is an issue, uh, by all means, feel free to uh, remain seated. But uh, I'm going to begin reading at 1 Samuel, chapter 19, beginning at verse 18. 1 Samuel 19, verse 18. Again, if you're able, please stand with me as you read. I'm going to read down to the end of chapter 20 so we get the whole scope of this account that is before us today. Now, David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they're at Nioth in Ramah. So he went there to Nioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Well, then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of Yahweh with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, Yahweh, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, Yahweh do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May Yahweh be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of Yahweh that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. For when Yahweh cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face, or when Yahweh cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May Yahweh take vengeance on David's enemies. And, Yah and Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the young man, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. 
then you are to come, for as Yahweh lives, it is safe for you and there's no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the angels are beyond you, then go, for Yahweh has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, Yahweh is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something's happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either today or, or yesterday or today? Jonathan asked, answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brothers commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to his own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of Yahweh, saying, Yahweh shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. God adds his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Please do be seated. When I was growing up, uh, we did some camping. Uh, Many of you have done camping before. Camping's fun, can be fun. It's not fun when it rains, when you're in a tent that leaks multiple times, every time. Um, my father uh, used, to, used to say that his idea was roughing it was when the hotel had a black and white TV. <laughs> kind of dates that a little bit. Um, but uh, nonetheless, camping can be a great thing. It can be fun to be out there in the wilderness with the birds and it's quiet and, you know, you get the rocks out from under your back and it's not quite so bad after that. And then... Can you tell I'm a little cynical about camping? Anyway, being out there in the field can be a great thing, but it sure is nice when you get home, isn't it? You get in your bed, and it's it's comfortable, and there's no bugs. You know, while a lot of us probably do enjoy camping and being out there, when we think about how we want to live our entire life, that's probably not it for most of us. Most of us look on it as a break, a change in routine, as something that might be fine for a little while, but we want to get back to our, our comfort zones. We've been talking about comfort zones in the last couple of, last couple of Sundays as, as Yahweh has been shaking David loose from his, preparing him to go out and do what he needs to do. 
to ready himself to be the next king. And from David's perspective, it's been going on for quite a while that he has uh, been serving Saul. He's been in the court. He is kind of, you know, kind of doing his internship, if you will, there in the court, learning how things run, learning how, how the, the structures of government work. And of course, he's been out making friends and even some enemies as well because of his successes on the battlefield. He's gained in those skills as well. And yet returns home uh, to the comforts of his, his wife and his usual ministry there in the court with music. But now, uh, David is a fugitive. Saul has, uh, again, sought to kill him, him, trying to pin him to the wall with a spear. And so David flees. And his first stop is at the School of the Prophets in Ramah, which is just about two miles north of Gibeah, which is where Saul's court is. So David doesn't run very far. But he goes to Ramah. The, the uh, term Naioth is a term that is a, it's a plural term that speaks of dwellings. It's like a compound that's there where these uh, uh, budding prophets that were studying under Samuel were living together and preparing for the prophetic ministry as the Lord would move them out um, in his good time. David, no doubt, saw, saw this as a safe haven, even though it was only two miles away from Gibeah. Saul, even in his madness, had not yet stooped to attacking the prophets. And Samuel was still a very powerful person in the kingdom. In fact, in some ways, he was more powerful than Saul. He outranked Saul because of his connection directly uh, to Yahweh. So David had gone to his home, if you might remember. He'd gone to his home to seek asylum and peace. There in the company of his wife, there was no comfort there. Saul pursued him there. He had to be let out of a window and escape. And now he's uh, going to find, um, striving to find some peace and some comforting counsel in the presence of the man who truly was the shepherd of Israel at that point, was Samuel, as well as being among those who were faithfully following Yahweh as best they could. And David would need that encouragement. If you kind of put yourself in his shoes, life's not going real smoothly right now. He has to leave his wife behind, has to leave all the comforts of his home and normal routines behind. Um, He's uh, going to a place where the prophets weren't there to live in a palace it would have been pretty Spartan. Uh, certainly far cry from the trappings of the court. And David's wondering, Lord, I thought I was supposed to be king. And yet, the current king's trying to kill me. What is what is going on here? And I, I can't seem to find anywhere to just put down my head in peace and safety. Uh, where, he's, where he's putting his head down now, there's lots of rocks in his back. Lots of discomforts, lots of bugs, lots of all those other things that um, might be fun to tolerate for a little bit, but uh, to look at at that as stretching out in front of you with no end in sight is not a comforting thought. And that's where David's at right now. And, you know, there's an additional benefit of David's going to see Samuel in that Yahweh would indeed turn this little detour north of Gibeah into a real chance for David to truly escape. Just getting two miles away is not much of an escape uh, from the madness of Saul. So David needs some time, and and, and Yahweh is going to bring that about. He does it. This is a... This is a puzzling passage. 
know, we don't often think of the unrighteous speaking on God's behalf. But occasionally they do. Remember the prophet, the false prophet Balaam? Yeah, he, he was really no friend of Yahweh's and no friend of Israel's. But when called upon to curse Israel, the word of the Lord came to him and he was able to bless, he, he blessed Israel instead to the chagrin of Israel's enemies. And there have been others that are like that as well in Scripture. Well, here Saul sends all these messengers that are going to, to take David and bring him to Saul so he can be killed. And they all start prophesying. It would have been, oh, I would love to know what they were saying. We were not told anything that they were saying, but it was of the Spirit of God. So who knows whether they were talking about the, 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 up, the upcoming change in Israel's monarchy or if it was just praising God in some particular way we're not told but group after group are sent and they all start prophesying they basically show up there and the spirit of God comes upon them and they are overcome and they are speaking God's word uh, in a marvelous way and then finally Saul himself comes Saul remember when he had taken the the throne to begin with when he was anointed that the spirit of God rushed upon him but then God's Holy Spirit left him and an evil spirit came upon him as God's Holy Spirit rushed upon David when David was anointed and now here the spirit of God returns to Saul and Saul begins to speak um, the things of God and you get the impression he didn't he really was hardly aware of what he was actually saying he was in an ecstatic state. Um, this, as I read this, and maybe this came to your mind as well, thought of another king who would, uh, some years later, would have a similar, uh, a similar kind of experience, not so much in the prophesying, but being in an ecstatic state, kind of out of control, uh, leaving uh, all sense of reality and he wasn't even a Jewish king he was a Babylonian king yeah some of you are tracking with me think about Nebuchadnezzar who for seven years the Lord just took his reason and he's out there living in the living in the field eating grass like a cow and his nails are growing his hair is growing he, by the time he was done he looked like cousin it probably And yet, um, in God's good time, he, you know, he, he used that with Nebuchadnezzar to remind Nebuchadnezzar who's really sovereign. Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar was boasting about how he was the greatest king ever. That he was truly among the gods. And that none could withstand him. And the Lord just took him, knocked his feet out from under him and took him down. The Lord does the same thing with Saul, though not quite as dramatically in terms of the whole eating grass thing and all of that. Saul still is the Lord's anointed. There's a different relationship with him than there would have been with Nebuchadnezzar. But nonetheless, Saul needed to be reminded who was truly in charge. And it was during this time that for... for uh, uh, as it says, all that day and all that night, <clears throat> there for a, a couple of days of sending messengers back and forth, David has a chance to escape and truly make his getaway. Even though I think he was much have preferred to stay right there with Samuel. Anyway, imagine David's frame of mind. He's weary. He's afraid. Longs for shelter with family and the faithful. Sees no end in sight. It, it just makes you tired thinking about it. And, and as far as the escape goes, where is this escape going to take him? He has no idea. He has no idea. In fact, David's journey in the field is just beginning. 
Now you may, might wonder why I chose that title for this message in the field, and it's because you may have caught, as I read through it, five different occasions in this, in this passage that I read to you. You see the phrase, into the field or in the field. It is a major component of the setting of these events. And it's bookended by, by being in the city or being in a town. But in the middle, it's all about being in the field. The field is not a place that we necessarily want to spend all of our time. But for David and for you, there are, there are important things to do in the field, as we shall see in this passage. First of all, in chapter 20, 1 through 10, here we're not quite in the field. David takes the opportunity uh, now that, that all of Saul's messengers and Saul himself are indisposed up at Nioth, he runs back to Gibeah. Again, two miles. It's not a, long, not a long journey. But he goes back there because Jonathan has been left in charge. It's interesting, the, the phrasing of verse 1 of chapter 20. It says that David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan. That's, that's a... He doesn't, it doesn't say he said to Jonathan. We see that other places in this dialogue that carries on. But that before Jonathan suggests that Jonathan was, was uh, acting as regent while Saul had left. Saul, Jonathan would take care of any smaller matters while Saul was away. So David comes before his friend, and basically says, what do I do? It's like a last-ditch attempt to find peace in town, looking for Jonathan's protection. And they've got a relationship, and that protection was something that he could reasonably expect to receive. And perhaps, uh, I think David is just thinking, what, maybe Jonathan can do this. But as they go through here, uh, this discussion in verses 1 through 10, and they start to make some preliminary plans and going back and forth, and David's saying, your dad just wants to kill me. And Jonathan's going, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And David's not buying it. Not that he thinks that Jonathan is lying. You do get the impression with Jonathan, he would be another one to do an interesting study on. Um, Jonathan is is a, a, a person who seems to have very little in the way of guile. He is not, he's not a person who's got this big agenda all the time. He's really genuine and maybe a little on the naive side. And uh, David is coming to him. and It's not that David thinks that Jonathan is, again, is lying. He just thinks that Jonathan's not seeing things clearly. You see that a little bit later when Saul throws the spear at Jonathan, at, uh, the spear at Jonathan, and Jonathan goes, well, then David, Jonathan knew that it's like, it took that for you? Okay, bud, all right. Uh, it, 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 it sunk in at that point. Well, David, as he's talking with Jonathan, he's beginning to understand that as well-meaning as Jonathan is, that Jonathan can't help him. Not really. Not at least not staying there in, in, in a protected state. There are other ways that he can help, and they develop that as they go along here. But David realizes that he is not going to find peace in that court. It just isn't going to happen. And he's, so he's wrestling, though. In verse 5, it says, you know, I, I, I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. David's wrestling with his sense of duty, obligations to his family, um, and just self-preservation. Trying to figure out how to do this. And this little uh, uh, excuse that he gives about uh, you know wanting to go, uh, go home, um, I'm going to... Uh, uh, 
about the yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. Because this, as you may have noticed later on in the account, this is the time of the new moon. There was some feast that was going on, uh, which David would have been expected to be in the court of the king. But then there's the, the family would do things as well. So we're not, we don't get the rest of this story, whether somebody from the family actually said to him, hey, can you come home? Or if he's just thinking, hmm, this could be a plausible excuse. Uh, if it's a plausible excuse, then you kind of have to deal with David wrestling with his fears in that court and letting, letting his honesty take a hit here. Or it could simply be that we're just not told some of the other parts of the story and that this was really done. He's, he says at one point, so I'm going to go out and hide, but then Jonathan makes it clear come back and hide on the third day. So it allows David to go home. Because Bethlehem's not that far away to go home and do that, and then come back on the third day when he would expect to get the answer. Anyway, um, David's beginning to understand that he's not going to be able to stay there, and he's going to have to go somewhere else. He's going to have to go out into the field. And, and, Jonathan says, after David says, well, how I know? How will we talk about this? Jonathan says, well, let's go out into the field. And so they go out into the field. We can try and try and try to secure our security through all kinds of different ways. Our peace in all kinds of different ways. We can surround ourselves with the faithful. We can surround ourselves with friends. And those things can be helpful to a certain degree. But when it comes to our pushing forward into doing the things that the Lord calls us to do, and sometimes those are uncomfortable things. Sometimes He calls us to, un, through, to go through uncomfortable circumstances to bring about what it is that He has put on our plates to accomplish. The fact of the matter is, is that staying in the town, in the place of comfort, in the place of, of seeming safety, is often not the best place to prepare us to do things. Some of you have been in the military. Um, when you did, uh, well, of course, Except for the Air Force, they might have done boot camp at the Hilton, but probably not. <laughs> Sorry, Charles, I couldn't help myself. Most of the time when you're out there doing boot camp, <laughs> that kind of thing, you, you know, it's, it's not flowery beds of ease, is it? You're put in a place where you're stretched, where you have to pay attention, you can't let your guard down. Because those are the things that hone your skills and hone your strength so that you can actually do what you're called upon to do. The necessity of being in the field, we need to accept that. Sometimes we need to be in the field. When the Lord gives us times of rest in this life, rejoice in them, but don't get too comfortable. Because as He calls us to do other things, there are skills that we need to do them. There are character traits that need to be developed so that we will be steadfast and endure. We need to accept the necessity of being in the field because there is no better place than the wilderness to learn about Yahweh's faithfulness. David would say in Psalm 22, a great messianic psalm that has so many tie-ins with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. And then a little later in the psalm, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. David would never have known that if all were flowery beds of ease. He would have been all too ready to just take his position 
and his authority and his abilities for granted. But he learned to trust Yahweh in the field and he's beginning to trust him now. There's another important thing to do after accepting that it's necessary to be there. And that is, when you're in the field, it's a wonderful place to be sure of your friends. I think we're all familiar with that phrase, fair-weather friends. Think of the prodigal son, remember, who had lots of friends as long as he had money. And then once he spent it all, his friends abandoned him. Job had some friends, and they were great as long as they sat there and kept their mouths shut. But then once they started in, they made his life even more miserable as they ganged up on him. Our Lord and Savior, when he died on the cross, one of the saddest statements there is that all fled from him and left him alone. So there are friends and there are friends. Jonathan uh, truly showed himself to be a genuine friend. Jonathan put his life on the line here. And in fact, not just his physical life, but everything that had to do with his entire line as he was ready and willing to stand with the one whom Yahweh had anointed to be the next king, even though it would cost him the throne. The thing about in the field is that only true friends are likely to meet you there, particularly when times are difficult. Verse 17, notice what we see there, that Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Jonathan was a true, genuine friend. Yeah, the field is a, this is another aspect of the necessity of being there. It really does help you know who your friends are. Those that stand with you in affliction. Because the ones that only stand with you when times are good and easy, they, they might have to learn how their, the level of their friend, how deep their friendship goes with you. But many times um, you will find out that when you get into difficulty, uh, the ones that uh, are, are the true friends are the ones who are going to stick with you through it. Because when you're in difficulty, when you're vulnerable, when uh, you're not as comfortable and nice to be around or the, the flaws of your character get seen, it can be easy to look at such folks and say, yeah, you know, I'm kind of uncomfortable. Their vulnerabilities remind me too, many, too much of my own. Their failures remind me too much of my own. Or just, this situation is too great for me to handle. I can't be any help, so I'll get maybe I'll get somebody else, but I can't do this. And while it's true that there's lots of things that we can't do, sometimes the best thing that we can do for somebody is to just sit with them and be a presence and be there for them. Just quietly letting them know that they're not alone. And sometimes you can do more. And if you can, you do. But don't uh, reject, don't, don't try to sit, avoid being in the field because you'll have fewer friends. You will have fewer friends, true ones. But they will be the true ones. That you... That, that will stand with you even when the time is difficult. The field is also, um, oh, and so, well, let me just say from verses 11 through 17, this is all about, they've already made a covenant together. It's reiterated here and expanded. (laughs) Um, Jonathan refines David's initial plan a little bit. And promising that he would come and he would be sure to tell David exactly 
uh, what was happening. Uh, he then goes on to say, if I'm still alive, show me Yahweh's steadfast love, that covenant loyalty that, that mirrors that of our God. That he was asking David to pledge to preserve his life and that of his descendants. And, and then calling upon Yahweh to take vengeance on his enemies. Think about the nature of that prayer. Who is David's enemy? Jonathan's father. And yet, Jonathan is willing to lay everything else aside for the sake of God's glory and the benefit of God's, God's man. And that is a blessing. Solomon would say in Proverbs 18, 24, a verse that many of you I'm sure are familiar with, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jonathan was one of those. If you've been serving the Lord very long in your life and just not even not just in the service of the Lord, but just in life itself. Most of you can think of a person or a few people who have stuck with you through thick and thin. That no matter what has been flung your way, even when you have been less than stellar, as in David, being a little less than stellar perhaps in his uh, planning to try to, to figure out a story even, Jonathan still sticks by him. Not because David's perfect, but because he loves David for his character, for, his, for um, his mutual love back and forth, but also because of who David was in God's economy. And those kind of friends are few and far between. And when they come along, you ought to hang on to them and be that same kind of friend to them. Well, uh, a third thing that we can do in the field that's a good thing to do is making your plans. You can make plans in your field, wherever that field happens to be. In the field, there's fewer distractions. Why do we go camping? Well, because we don't have the busyness and the bustle and everything else that goes on. We can turn the cell phone off. We, can, we don't have the, the TV. We don't have all those other things that just occupy our mind and so on that just wear us out. Out in the field, air's a little cleaner. There's less occupying our attention. The comforts that we long for in life and ministry are nice while they last, but they often cloud our thinking about what should be done or they sap our energies and sap our attention. And we can comfort ourselves into a stupor while all around us a fallen world is in rebellion and God's kingdom is in shambles. So let the cleaner air of the wilderness sharpen your mind as you consider how the Lord is faithfully working to guide you in your path of service for him. Now, certainly there's an element of getting away, go on vacation, and literally going into the wilderness can have this effect. I know when Karen and I go on our vacations, we try to get away from other things and we spend time not just, you know, laying there, but uh, we spend time talking about things that we don't usually have time to talk about. Talk about plans, talk about goals, talk about uh, evaluating where we are and where we ought to go and those kinds of things that the everyday routine uh, impacts and gets in the way of. But I'm also talking about spiritual wildernesses, fields. I'm talking about um, not just getting out in the trees and so on, but thinking about the wilderness of loss and the wilderness of confusion and the wilderness of financial ruin or social concerns, all other kinds of things that we can get out uh, of our normal comforts that we 
we pad our lives with and we get out there and see what's really happening and it helps us to think a little bit better much better than if we were just still in the padded room of our comforts I want you to think about these words from the writer of Hebrews again a familiar passage chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight lay aside the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us this is, this is an imagery of the steeplechase, the cross country, in the field, running the race that God has set before us as we lay aside everything else, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So it's a great place to make your plans, and we see that in verses 18 through 23. So they... All right, so go over here. You remember that stone heap where you hid before? All right, third day, come back. Go to that stone heap. We'll go out there. I'll shoot some arrows. Jonathan, Jonathan knows how to plan. And they, they lay it all out, exactly what's going to happen so that he can communicate clearly what's going on. It's a great place to make your plans. Uh, Jonathan, I'm not sure why Jonathan said, let's go into the field. To David. I mean, he could have sat right there, but perhaps it being the court, he didn't want anybody else to hear the plans. Uh, the boy he took, took along didn't know anything about the plans. Uh, that's culpable deniability that Jonathan built into that system. Jonathan was thinking about others all along. But they were able to make their plans there. And, and in the field, sometimes, in, in times when you have to be more, more up, more on edge, more aware, that's a great time to make plans and not forget important details. A fourth thing that you can do in the field, this one's hard, wait for news. Wait for news. Sometimes the waiting is harder than the doing, isn't it? I mean, that's a, general truth in life we don't like to wait we want to get on with it we want things to we want things to happen we want our plans to all come together so we can tie that up with a bow set it on its shelf and move on to the next thing but sometimes the lord calls upon us to wait and jonathan says all right you go out three days three days of wondering what's going on would have been an agony to david to try to figure out what is he doing? What is Saul doing? What, and what's Jonathan doing? And is Jonathan okay? Is, okay, I know it's the second day. I know he said the third day, but I hope he's all right. I don't know. There's no way to check. You know, all those things that can flood into our hearts and minds when we're facing a, a trial, facing a difficulty, and we want the answers now. And David is called upon to wait in the field. It's interesting Throughout this whole section, Jonathan and David have invoked Yahweh's name multiple times in, in covenant language for all kinds of things. This, this thought occurred to me, and I, I, I think it's rather striking. You know, I, everybody kind of knows that, that saying that uh, goes something along the lines of uh, uh, man proposes, God disposes, or the more colloquial one, we plan, God laughs. But you know, the Lord doesn't always laugh at our plans, even when they're kind of half-baked, even when they're kind of odd. I'm not sure why Jonathan thought that they, he had to do the arrows thing and bring the little kid along, I mean, if David's hiding out at the stone, Jonathan could have gone out there by himself, shot arrows, and go, oh, you know, I think I'll just so appearances in case anybody's watching and then wander over somewhere and just said to David, oh, by the way, yeah, you need to leave. But he goes through all of these things. I think it's interesting that as they have 
put themselves in Yahweh's hands, even as they make these plans, the Lord does honor their planning. Did you notice that? Because the plan was, let's see how Saul reacts when you're gone. And the Lord makes it very clear, abundantly clear, as to how Saul was going to react. Much to Jonathan's shame and disgrace and anger, as his own father tries to pin him to the wall with a spear. So the Lord even uses this plan to accomplish his purposes in their lives. He does call upon us to enter into life with our brains attached, to be thinking carefully about how we should go through this life. But I'm thankful, you know, that even though our plans, we're obviously not sovereign, we don't know everything. We, We can't anticipate everything. Anybody here have the perfect plan? The absolute perfect plan that nothing ever went wrong with it. You didn't have to make any adjustments whatsoever. It's amazing. There's not a single hand here. But that's the way it works. And yet the Lord sovereignly ministers to us in our lives in the midst of those things, even using the plans that we put forward to bring himself glory and good to us. But being in the field sometimes means you're waiting. His timing is different than ours. And I'm thankful that our covenant God who loves us tenderly hears us and accommodates our fearful simplicity before him. Be confident as you pray in the wilderness that Yahweh hears you. He is, after all, named El Shammah, the God who hears. Psalm 37, verse 34. David, who is weeping the most. Did you catch that little detail? David weeps the most at this parting. Yes, for the, the loss of this connection and friendship with Jonathan, the the isolation that are, are before him. He's going to leave his wife at home, his friends home. He's leaving everything. But he's able to say in Psalm 37, wait for Yahweh and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I think David learned his lesson in the field, did he not? And finally, Begin your journey in the field. This last couple of verses, as they make their final goodbyes, really simply, David departed, Jonathan went back to the city. Don't look for fanfare. Don't look for somebody to pat you on the back and tell you what a hero you are because you're in the field. Don't look for a marching band or some other thing to, to proclaim uh, your, and make, make your way smooth. Just put one foot in front of the other and get on with it, with what the Lord calls you to do. You know, the uh, field and wilderness setting is very familiar in the pages of Scripture. Israel wandered in the wilderness 40 years. Elijah would flee to the wilderness to escape a murderous queen. Jesus retreated to the wilderness to recover after his temptation and he would be crucified outside the city to redeem his people from their sins. The Apostle Paul would be schooled in the wilderness three years by the Spirit of God. Now, though the world loves to talk about the field of dreams, in many cases your field may be more one of nightmares. Sorrows from broken relationships, loss of security, failing health, financial reversals, fearful trends in a fallen world, betrayal at the hands of friends or family, not to mention your own spiritual wasteland of persistent sin and failure before God. That's hardly the sort of scenario in which we envision we will rise to victory in Jesus, right? But do remember Jesus' words in the Beatitudes. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Now David's wilderness wanderings, unlike those of Israel, are not due to his sins. They're part of God's plan to prepare him for the kingdom. He would have very likely been much more uh, at ease and much happier if his path to the monarchy had started with a celebration in the comforts of the capital, surrounded by friends and family with the crown graciously placed upon his head from the hands of Saul. The field is, in fact, a rather dismal beginning. But there are important things to do in the field, as we've seen. So don't be afraid to find yourself there in the field. It just might be the best place for you in the providence of God as he prepares you for whatever is next in his plan for you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this tremendous passage. So much to, to grapple with here. And yet, Lord, what we come away with most is knowing that wherever we are, in the city or in the field, you are with us. You are our comforter, our guider, our protector. You are the one who leads us and who has marked out our path for us. So let us, Father, not recoil from times of trouble and affliction and, and wilderness types of experiences when we seem cut off and, and struggling. The Lord, in those struggles and in that seeming isolation. Lord, let us see you more clearly than ever. Take one step and uh, take one step and then the next and go about by your enabling doing the things that you call us to do. We pray these things in the name of our savior, the Lord Jesus.